Well, uh, the title is God's Law and the Covenants of Works and Grace. And we're going to deal with some things here, finishing up chapter 4 of the 1689 of creation. And we're going to deal with some things that aren't necessarily directly stated within this chapter, but are um, a part of it nonetheless. And they're dealt with in more specificity in other areas of the confession. But being that we're just walking through the confession and we may not get to these other areas for a while, I think it's a good idea for us to finish up this chapter before we go on to chapter 5 and talk about the providence of God and uh, just kind of talk about these, these areas that are very important, and I would argue they're, they're very foundational. They're very foundational to the Christian life. They're very foundational to anyone that has any aspirations or desires to, to teach and preach. You must absolutely have a firm and a solid grounding in these areas, and that is an understanding of God's law and understanding um, how it is that we differentiate between um, the law of God in the scriptures and also an understanding of how God has condescended to us. And we see that in these covenants that he has made with us and also covenants that he has made um, within, the, within the Trinity even, covenants that had been made um, that had uh, very important effects upon us. And some of that will be very much unpacked in the conference that we have coming up in October. So um, we're just just going to fly over this real quick and just uh, just hit on some some high points here. But it's very very important that we understand um, the law of God and how to uh, differentiate it. To, to understand that there there is moral law, there's judicial law, there is there is ceremonial law. And there's, there's even other ways that we would separate the law of God and understand you have moral law, and then everything besides that ends up falling into a category known as positive law. And understanding that helps us to understand what it is we are supposed to do now in our lives, and it helps us to understand how it is we apply these positive laws that were given to other people uh, to us, because we can get our lines crossed in certain ways if we begin to apply laws that were intended for a particular people or a particular um, group of people, and then we can apply them to us as though they were given directly to us in the same manner and fashion that they were given to um, another group of people. And this will have an impact on our Baptist theology, because the Baptists that wrote this confession differentiated themselves from the Congregationalist in the Savoy Declaration and the Presbyterians in the Westminster Confession. And so these distinctions that are there um, are even here within this chapter in the way in which they, they organized it. And they organized it that way because they were Baptists and they wanted to give a positive declaration as to why it is they held to the things that they did in regard to baptism. So let's walk through this. I've given just a brief summary there of what we're going to walk through here today, um, and what we'll talk through, basically the covenants we're mainly going to do with is the covenant of works and the covenant of, of grace, and understanding the covenant of works is that which was originally uh, given to Adam, and were he to be faithful in that, he would have the blessing of life, and being unfaithful to that covenant, he was cursed with death and all that followed from that, and so, so were those that came after him were affected. The covenant of grace is 
like the covenant of works in some ways and unlike it in other ways. And the difference in the covenant of grace is that you are being granted the blessings of obedience to that covenant. However, you are not the one who has met the requirements of that covenant. That covenant, uh, the covenantal merits were um, met by Christ. And so you are granted this blessing because of what Christ has done. In the covenant of works, if you are obedient, then you will receive blessing. If you are disobedient, then you will receive curses. But in the covenant of grace, we were disobedient, but we have been granted the blessings of this covenant by grace and through faith because of the merits and the works of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has granted that to us. So let's read through paragraph 2 and paragraph 3 of chapter 4 of the Confession. It says, After God had made all other creatures, he created man, male and female, with reasonable and immortal souls, rendering them fit unto life to God, for which they were created, being made after the image of God, in knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness, having the law of God written in their hearts, and the power to fulfill it, yet under a possibility of transgressing, being left to the liberty of their own will, which was subject to change. Besides the law written in their hearts, they received a command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which, they, which while they kept, they were happy in their communion with God and had dominion over the, the, creature, the creatures. And we, we have something that we need to understand here that is unpacked in a latter chapter of the confession, but that is this idea of the fourfold state of man, because they're communicating this idea that Adam and Eve had the ability to keep these commands that God gave. Adam and Eve had the ability to walk in righteousness, and you being born into this world in your natural state do not have the ability in the same way in which Adam and Eve had the ability to walk in obedience. And that brings us to this very important theological understanding of what is known as the fourfold state of man. And this fourfold state of man is unpacked in this order in the chapter of the Confession on Free Will. And you may say, wait a second, I thought this was a Calvinistic church. How can a Calvinistic church believe in free will? Well, a Calvinistic church does believe in free will if you understand what we mean by free and if you understand what we mean by will. In the very classical traditional sense where people normally use that word free will, meaning that you can choose anything you want and do whatever you want and you have all options before you, at that time, we would say, well, no, in your natural state, you don't have that. So let's walk through these fourfold state, and then we'll, we'll compare it to this normal understanding of, of free will. Because Adam and Eve, as we said earlier in our instruction, they had free will. They were in what is known as a state of innocence. They were made by God. They were perfect. God said the creation was good when he made it. He made Adam and Eve. He said they are very good. There was nothing wrong with them. They had, they had no faults. They had no errors. They had the liberty to choose good and evil, and they had the ability to even change uh, their natural condition that they were in, to go from being in a state of righteousness to being in a state of unrighteousness. Now, this is why we don't have what you would call free will in the same way in which Adam and Eve had free will when we are born into this world in our natural state because we are born 
in a state of sin. We have been affected by the sin of Adam. And so we are born in the second state here known as a, the, a state of sin. And so man in a state of sin does freely act. Now understand that. Understand this reality. Man freely acts in a state of sin. Okay, man in a state of sin is not this robot that God just programmed him to be this robot and to walk around and, and, and do all kinds of sin. No, he is freely acting. He is freely walking in this way. He has been affected, though. And so he is acting according to his own nature. He's acting according to his natural disposition, which is one that is in rebellion to God. That's the second state here. So that's why man doesn't have free will, as many would like to call it. And the reality is, is that God has given a command. God has given this command, and we'll, we'll see that in our next point, walking through the law of God. But God has given this command that people are to walk in obedience. You're made in the image of God. You're to bear the image of God. And so you are to walk in obedience to his law that he has given to you and his moral law, and then all the other positive laws that he gives you to walk in obedience to those as well. And you may say, well, that's not fair. How can God give a command that we can't do? That was a debate that happened between a man named Augustine and a man named Pelagius. Augustine prayed, Lord, give us the power to do what you have commanded. And Pelagius was very offended by this. He said, how? How can you say How can you ask God to give us the power to do what he's commanded? If God's commanded it, certainly we have the ability to do it. Otherwise, he wouldn't command it. But no, you must understand, going between the state of innocence and sin, who changed? Was it God or was it man? It was man that changed. And so God had the same requirements. God can't change. He is immutable. So man is the one who fell, but the same requirements were there. And so God is not to be at fault because man sinned. God's not to be at fault because man has, has fallen from his original state. But God showed grace to us while we were yet sinners. So, so, so the Lord had a plan. The proto-evangelium is what we see very early in the pages of Scripture. And it goes back even prior to that into eternity past in a covenant of redemption between the Father and the Son. And so man now has an opportunity to be in what is known as a state of grace, a state of grace. And that is one who has been brought to life, whose eyes have been opened, who have trusted in the name of Jesus Christ, who have repented of their sins. The Spirit has indwelt them, has illuminated the the meaning even of Scripture, has given them eyes to see, ears to hear. They now have the ability to walk in obedience. They now have the ability to, to walk in obedience to the law of God. In this state, you can, you can sin or you cannot sin. You have, you have both options. In the prior state, the state of sin, all you could do was sin. Even when you did something good from a, a worldly standpoint. Like when we say this, when we say you're in a state of sin and all that you do is sin, we're not saying that you sin as much as you possibly can or as worse as you possibly can. The most evil person that has ever existed could have been worse than they are. The most evil person that has ever existed, you could follow that person around and find someone that they were were nice to, that they were kind to. There's a a book that was written about some some soldiers in World War II that served the Third Reich, and it was called Ordinary Men. And these are men who would go, and they would walk into the uh, concentration camps, and they they would 
they would take Jews and they would, they would put them into gas chambers. They would torture people. They did, un, did just terrible, terrible behaviors. And they did it because it was their job. And they could even make the argument, I was just following the law. How many people will do that? I'm just doing my job. I'm just following the law. It's legal to do what I'm doing. But then these men would go home and they would have dinner with their families. They, they would go to church. They would you know, go to sports games with their, with their kids. And you see these like just ordinary men participating in, in, these, in these behaviors. And this is, this is the reality that you can see some things about them that you can say, well, that was a nice thing they did for their child. That was something good they did over here by a worldly standard. But, but there is evil that was here. And that's the reality is that the effects of sin have so affected us that even the good things that we do, and I'm using the good in a, a kind of a, a worldly understanding of a good thing, saving someone from a fire is a good thing, but you must understand, you must be obedient to God from the heart. You must be obedient to God. Even your motives must be right. Even your intentions must be right. And so that's, that's the standard that is there. And, and it's, it's not that you know, everything else is just as low as it possibly can be. You know, if you compare men to other men, if you compare certain actions of men to other actions of men, you can find a stratification. But when you compare it to the high standard of God's law and understand that it is obedience in word, thought, and deed, that there is a reality that you just end up falling woefully short. And that's the state of sin. But in the state of grace, you're given a new heart. You're given a new mind. And it's that point you have... At the first point in your existence, you have the ability to walk in righteousness, to walk in obedience to the law of God. The fourth state of man is a state of glory. That's the eschatological hope that we have looking forward. And again, as I said, this is the exact way that when you go through the chapter on free will in the confession, that it is laid out. It's laid out in this exact way. And it's important for us to see this. This idea is communicated here in this early portion of the confession. And they're assuming that you already know this or assuming that you are going to pull it out of some other part of the confession. But this is something that's very important and very applicable to our, our lives. Secondly, we have this idea of, of the law of God. Um, and the law of God is mentioned in a couple places within uh, within this Within this, uh, within this chapter. We have the moral law, understanding the moral law is that which is just flowing from the very character of God. Um, it is the way in which you were designed to live. God has given his law to us because it is what is best for us. God has given his law to us because it is the way in which we were designed to exist. And when you begin to walk in a way that is contrary to the moral law of God. It is dehumanizing to you. It is destructive to you as a person. It is damaging to you. It is a, it is a downward spiral. You will begin to look and act more like the other creatures that God has made than you will look and act like the human that God has made you to be, made you to walk in um, the will of God, made you to be one who is one who is made in the image of God. Chapter 4, paragraph 2, we see this, this stated, having the law written in their hearts and the power to fulfill it, yet under the possibility of transgressing, being left to the liberty of their own will, which was subject to change. And we already talked about this. This was the state of innocence. 
But this is dealing with the moral law of God right here. That's what this is talking about. That the moral law of God was written on the hearts of Adam and Eve and their hearts were not distorted or damaged in the ways in which those who had come after, after the fall. And we see the, the moral law of God as that which is summarized within the Ten Commandments. And we see Jesus giving a summary of the moral law of God here in two commandments from the Old Testament. Some people don't realize this. These, these verses that he is quoting here, these laws that he's quoting, come from the Old Testament. They come from the Pentateuch. Okay, they're asking the question, which of the ten is the most important commandment? And Jesus is saying, well, one to four are the most important, and uh, five to ten are the second most important. So we see that idea communicated here in Matthew 22, 36 through 40. They see, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So all the other commandments of God are flowing out of, of these commandments here. And so this is a summary of the summary of the law. Sometimes people think this is the gospel. They will say, well, look, we, we aren't all about law. We're not all about rules. We just want to love God and love people. Well, that's, that's good. You should love God and love people. And that is the, the summary of the summary of the summary of the law. You just, you just summarize Jesus' summary of the law when you say you just want to love God and love people. You're basically saying, follow the Ten Commandments. And meanwhile, you'll have that same person try to say, oh, no, no, we're, we're not trying to be all rigid and strict with laws. Well, how is it that you're going to love God? Well, he tells you how you love God in the first four commandments. All right, well, how is it that I love people? Well, that's communicated in the last six commandments. It's important that you understand the moral law of God in this category, though. The moral law of God, as I said, applies to all people everywhere at all times. It never didn't apply. It's always applied everywhere. Pre-Sinai, before Moses was given the Ten Commandments, before the the law was given to him um, and the judicial and ceremonial law, uh, people were required to walk in obedience to the Ten Commandments. Um, At Sinai, you see it there in the Ten Commandments, and then you see it post Sinai. I'm not going to defend this point right now. If you want a defense of this, you can go to the Sunday school lesson I taught. Um, and it's in a series called Covenant Law and Sabbath. And the name of the Sunday school lesson is a critique of co- New Covenant theology. And I make this argument right here that the moral law of God was applicable before Moses, at Moses, and after Moses. It's always been something that is, that is applied. So I'm just going to assert this and not, not defend it at this point because um, we have more, more things to cover. We're just kind of just, just flying quickly over these, these ideas of God's law and these covenants um, just as a reminder that these are here within um, this, this chapter of the confession. Um, but now we have this idea of, of positive law and I, I mentioned it earlier and we've talked about positive law before and maybe some of you don't remember what positive law is so I'm going to Uh, We're going to talk about it here because it's here in the third paragraph. And it says this. It says, besides the law written on their hearts, right, that was the moral law, they received a command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which while they kept, they were happy in their communion with God and had dominion over 
the creatures. And so this is what we call a positive law. So why do we give it the name positive law? Or why are we talking about these, you know, these, these high theological ideas? And uh, why not talk about something more practical? This is very practical because this is a way in which you understand the commands that God gives. Positive laws are other commands that God gives other than the moral law. So you have the moral law that's applicable to all people at all times, and then you have positive laws that God gives that are applicable to a particular people at a particular time, and it's very, very important, it's very crucial that you understand positive laws in their context. And so the positive law we're talking about here is not eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was given to Adam and Eve. And so we need to understand it there within that context and not go and, I mean, if you want to use an illusion in some way and you're writing poetry, you can do that, but it's not something that you need to, you don't need to walk around the supermarket and just be concerned, okay, well, how do I know which, which fruit I can eat or how do I know which, which vegetables or, you don't have to worry about that. This command wasn't given to you. This isn't something that, that you're going to be held accountable for following. It's what's known as a positive law. And this is actually a positive law that people don't generally have an issue with um, messing up unless you get into some kind of a weird, weird cult. But the other positive laws that God gives, people tend to get their wires crossed and take it out of its original context and the way in which it was originally given, and it becomes confusing, confusing, and you end up with what we would call legalism. And legalism in the sense that you're saying, well, by following this, um, you are justified, right? Most people don't do that. We're way too sanctified to ever say that you're justified by following a particular commandment, but they will then say that you're sanctified. Oh, by following these particular dietary laws, because we found this in the Old Testament, you're thereby a, a better Christian. You're more sanctified. You're more holy than someone else. That's, there's a whole book in the Bible that is written you know, fighting that idea. There's a whole book of the Bible, Galatians, is written to say like this, these, these are positive laws, okay? You are not to go and put these yokes on other people. You are not to go and take these laws given in one particular context and apply them in a way um, that they were given in that context to another context into a people they were not particularly given to. Jim Renahan says this um, in, in his book on the 1689. He says, what is positive law? It is an added commandment given by revelation differing from moral or natural law in that the knowledge of it will only come externally by means of divine disclosure. For example, circumcision and baptism are both positive laws. They are appropriately part of worship associated with specific covenants, and it would be unknown apart from divine revelation. Any positive law is a command given by God for a particular purpose and or time. It requires, it requires obedience beyond what is required in the natural or moral law. So positive laws are what, pe what God gives on top of the moral law that is already uh, required. You can look at the ceremonial and judicial laws in the Old Testament that are given to the Jewish people, and you can understand these as being positive laws. Okay, we're going to get to a place here in a minute, and we're going to see this is where the error of the Presbyterian understanding of applying circumcision to baptism becomes an issue because they are taking a positive law given to people over here in a particular context to be practiced under a particular covenant, and they are applying it into the New Testament 
adding it to another covenant and applying it in a way that is not consistent. There's also going to be an area where we will see as Baptists, we generally have a different understanding of some of these covenants than some of the Presbyterians do. Let's look at what Renahan says here. He says, there was a mandate given besides what was written on their hearts. It was a direct command not to eat from the fruit um, of a specific tree. That is all. Um, do not do one thing apart from this revelation. Adam and Eve would have been free to eat of the tree, for without such revelation there would be no restriction. They were commanded, however, not to do this one thing. Their love for God would be demonstrated by their obedience, a true act of worship. Um, positive law is very important for Reformed Baptists. And so one of the reasons we have a distinction here in this third paragraph so I know some of you could be like, well, this is, this is not exciting. Why are you telling me how they organize the paragraphs differently from someone else? It is important because Reformed Baptists organize this differently than the writers of the Savoy Declaration and the Westminster Confession of Faith. And so you need to understand that the writers of the confession worked really, really hard not to be creative. They did not try to go under the tree with their Bible and just come up with whatever God gave to them. They did not just sit down and say, okay, let me just see what the Lord is going to reveal to me. They looked at the confessions written previously. They looked at church councils, all right? They looked at creeds, and they utilized those such that you have about 4% of the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith that is original, that is unique to that confession. So 96% of this confession is not unique. They were not trying to be creative. They were trying to say, we are reformed. But when it came to this area and an understanding of positive law, as it applied to baptism and circumcision, they were trying to say, there is a distinction here with us. We want to make a specific distinction here. And so you need to understand that we, the 1689 came out of the, what's called the Savoy Declaration John Owen and the Congregationalists had created the Savoy Declaration. Now that came out of what's known as the Westminster Confession of Faith. And so there were slight changes that were there going to Congregationalism, changes in church government. And there were changes going over here with Baptistic understandings of the law of God and, and the covenant. And so they, they intentionally made a third paragraph here and broke it off from the second paragraph to emphasize this idea that this is a positive law. Jim Renahan says this more eloquently than I can. He says, the Baptist Confession is slightly different from both the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Savoy in that it separates the statements of paragraph 3 from their place in paragraph 2 in the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Savoy. The content and expression are the same. Apart from the two unimportant stylistic alterations in the three documents, the division of the paragraphs may be related to the importance of the editors of the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith that they placed on the distinction between moral and positive law as addressed here. This distinction is a foundational aspect um, of their argument for credo-baptism. By separating this material, they subtly indicate their careful commitment to defining and differentiating between two forms of law recognized in the contemporary theological Discourse, And so this was intentional. They were communicating this idea on purpose. And we see this. He alluded to chapter 28 um, of the confession. Baptism of the Lord's Supper. The baptism of the Lord's Supper are ordinances of positive. Notice how they use that word there. Positive. Um, 
and sovereign institution appointed by the Lord Jesus, the only lawgiver, to be continued in his church to the end of the world. And they're making a distinction there, and they're emphasizing this idea that this is a positive law. This is an area where Presbyterians differ with us on. It has implications beyond just baptism. It begins to get into other areas of not understanding how to rightly understand and divide the judicial and ceremonial law. And we have others that begin to make other errors. They begin to apply things incorrectly. You begin to get into uh, theonomic understandings where you're taking these positive laws given over here and you're going to just directly slap them into another context and another people to which they were not they were not given. Um, Renahan emphasizes this. He says, since baptism and the Lord's Supper are appointments of Jesus Christ in his new covenant, they must be defined by new covenant scriptures. It is inappropriate to define new covenant ordinances by primary reference to Old Testament scriptures. And that's exactly what our brothers and sisters that are Presbyterians do. They will go to the Old Testament to give an interpretation of, of baptism. And they end up erring in many ways because they're not understanding how it is that this was, this was given. This is also true with ceremonial and judicial laws, and that's how those things need to be understood. We have a couple minutes left, and so I'm going to walk through these faster than I should. But covenant of works. Let's, this, is, this is here within um, this, this paragraph, chapter 4, paragraph 2. Having the law of God written on their hearts and the power to fulfill it, yet the possibility of transgressing it. This is talking about the covenant of works. God gave a covenant, made a covenant with Adam. All right? If he was obedient to this, he would have the blessing of life. If he was disobedient, he would receive curses. We're going to see this as very similar when they leave Egypt. All right? If they are obedient, they will receive blessings and they will be in the land. If they're disobedient, they will receive the curses that the Egyptians received when they were in um, when they were in Egypt. It doesn't directly mention the covenant of works, and some will try it w- great, with great error to, to argue that the writers of the Second London Baptist Confession didn't believe in this so-called covenant of works or that it's not scriptural. They did, and I'll show that in just a minute, that it does directly show up in, in other areas. But I want to make an emphasis here and understand that although you don't have in the scriptures God sitting down with Adam and making a covenant with him like you have him making with Abraham, it doesn't mean that it's not there because we have all of the aspects of covenants that are there, blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. But we even have in the book of Hosea it being called a, a covenant. Um, and it is directly compared to Israel in their disobedience, in, in walking in obedience to God. And so that's also going to support another point that I'm going to have, and that is the Mosaic Covenant was a covenant of works as well. If they were obedient, they would stay in the land. If they were disobedient, they would be removed from the land. This wasn't grace. This was gained because of, of their works and what they had done. God showed them mercy. There's no question there. God showed them mercy and kindness because there was another covenant that God had made between the Father and the Son. And that covenant is one that would preserve the line in Israel, despite their rebellion, would preserve this line so that the promised one would come forward. Remember, he's going to come out of the line of Judah. All right, he's going to be a child of, of Abraham. But look here at Hosea 6, 6, and 7. It says, for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God, 
rather than burnt offerings. And we have here, I want to emphasize here as well, a very important point being made about the law of God. Some people try to flatten the law of God out and just say, well, it's all the same in the Old Testament. You've got the Ten Commandments. You've got, you know, do not boil a baby goat and its mother's milk, and they're all the same. No, they're not the same. And this is one example where they are not the same. He says, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. He is making a distinction here between the moral law and the ceremonial law. He said, it matters more to me that I have your heart. It matters more to me that you're walking in obedience in your heart than it is that you go and burn these offerings. You should be following in these positive commands that God gives. But the moral law is more important than these positive commands. And so you can't go and follow these positive commands and then neglect these moral commands, this moral law, and then feel like that you are doing well. It's like someone that I just go to church. I'll just go to church and participate in church, and I'm going to live in a life that is contrary to that all week long. I'm sorry, that's not how that works. That's not how that works at all. And so we have, Hosea, it's it said here in Hosea 6, 6, and 7, it says, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt falsely with me. And so Adam is one that transgressed the covenant. According to Hosea here, there was a covenant. If there was no covenant with Adam, how could the Israelites have transgressed or broken a covenant like Adam did? They could only break the covenant like Adam did or in a similar way because a covenant had been given to Adam. And I also want to argue here that the covenant that was given with them and the Mosaic covenant was similar to the covenant that was given to Adam and that it was what we call a covenant of works. Our Presbyterian brothers, for the most part, will call the Mosaic Covenant, the covenant given to the Israelites, a covenant of grace. And I will argue many times over that that is not the case. You can, there's a, a sermon that I preached uh, many years back. I think it was like in probably like 2017. Um, and I, 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 you know, I walked through that in particular. I'll, I'll give that reference here in a minute. And uh, Vody preached one as well, distinctions of the old and the new covenant. These are distinctions. They're not all. The new covenant and the old covenant aren't, aren't the same. Let's look at Isaiah 24, 5, and 6. It says, The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they transgressed the laws. They violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours the earth, and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are scorched, and few men are left. And this is the idea that in breaking God's law, it was a breaking of a covenant with God. And so that happened with Adam, and it continues to be broken when men in their fallen state are, are sinning. We see this idea of the covenant of works. I'm not going to read it at this point, but chapter 6, paragraph 1, you have that idea communicated there. Uh, chapter 19 on, on the law of God, uh, paragraph 1 has that. Chapter 20, paragraph 1, um, has the actual phrase, the covenant of works. So those that like to say the covenant of works is not in the 1689, you can say, well, it's in all these other places that I've mentioned, but it's directly stated here in paragraph one, the covenant of works being broken by sin and made unprofitable to life, God was pleased to give forth the promise of Christ, the seed of the woman, as a means of calling the elect and begetting them to faith and repentance. And so you have this idea of the covenant of works there, and it's given here in this chapter on the gospel because this covenant of works was broken, and therefore it was necessary that God would do something else. And what God did was he, he, he made a promise, 
And this is in the covenant of grace, and this flows back even into the covenant of redemption between the Father and the Son. We see that emphasized in Ephesians 1. But there was a promise made there at the fall. God wasn't, what am I going to do? No, God had a plan. And God said he would send a son, a child of the woman, who would crush the head of the serpent. And this needs to be understood in a different way than the covenant of works. We need to understand the covenant of grace In the covenant of works, if Adam was faithful, then Adam and those who came after him would receive the reward, all right? If Israel was faithful in what they did, they would receive the rewards for for what they had done. They would stay in the land, and they would continue to be there. But in walking in disobedience, they would receive curses. Well, in the covenant of grace, there is a declaration that you had no ability whatsoever to keep this covenant or to, to, to meet the requirements of this covenant. You couldn't do it. That's the narrow gate of, of coming to Christ. That's the narrow gate of the gospel is to say your own inability, your own insufficiency, and to recognize that one has acted for you on your behalf. As Paul says here, Romans 8, 3 and 4, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemns sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. See that. What was, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. You in the flesh could not keep the law. You were unable to do this. So God has sent one so that his standard didn't change. Or his standard's the same, but the righteous requirement of law would be fulfilled in granting to you a greater, um, uh, the second Adam, Jesus, who would come, and he would walk in obedience. That is the, the covenant of grace. That's the beauty of, of what you have. That's contrasted here with the covenant of works, which I believe is communicated here in Exodus 24. I think this might even be the passage that I preached over. Exodus 24, 7 and 8. Then he took the blood of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with these words. Were they to be obedient, they would receive the blessings of following this. In disobedience, they would receive the curses. That is not where we are in Christ Jesus. It's not where we are at all. Um, so that, that, that sermon that I preached was Old and New Covenant, Exodus 24, 1 through 11. You can find that on um, sermon audio. And also, Vody preached a sermon, a distinctiveness of the Old and the New Covenants, in Exodus 19, 8 through, through 15. And I think it's very important that, that, that you see this, this reality. It's important that we see these distinctions of the law, that we understand that there is a moral law, but there's also positive laws. These positive laws must be interpreted within their context, the covenants they're under, and the people that they're given to, and also understanding the covenants of works and the covenant of grace. Understanding these two covenants, the covenant of works was broken by Adam. Um, It's very similar in ways, as I, I mentioned, to what was given to the Israelites. Obedience will result in blessing. Disobedience will result in curses. But the new covenant that we are under, the covenant whereby all people who have ever been saved are under is one that says, I am not able to do this. I am, as Job says, trusting in my Redeemer. Job says, I know my Redeemer lives. You can look at Hebrews 11. Those are all people that were trusting in the Messiah 
to come. And that's a covenant of grace and not of works. And it is Christ that has met those merits. Christ has done what was required in the law um, because there was a weakness in the flesh to walk in accordance to the law because Adam sinned. We're in a different state than Adam was. He was in innocence. We're born into sin. But through the work of Christ, the blessing of Christ, the work of the Word and the Spirit, we are made, we are reborn to be in a state of grace and ultimately will be in a state of glory.